investment on his own and sitting up with the kingdom for a period of time and all. And what we've noted in these studies is that when we've looked at these passages in their context, we've seen that these authors were writing to a persecuted people and they were speaking of an imminent near at hand judgment. And if we look at the full context, we can see that that persecution has, was the Jews of the uh, Christians. And we go back to the Gospels and see that uh, through each of the Gospels, Jesus has really promised two things to the Jews who rejected him. Uh, he told them that they would destroy him, that he was going to raise that body up in, in three days' time. And then he also told them that... Uh, that he was going to come in judgment on them, and that uh, their city would be destroyed, their temple would be destroyed, their worship would be destroyed, that Judaism was going to go by the wayside, there was going to be a new order, a uh, new covenant, a new system that, that took over. And there were any number of ways that he stated that judgment situation in the Gospels. And he also made it clear that it was a judgment that would come on that generation, while, while many of them were still living. And we proceed on through the New Testament, we uh, go through the book of Acts, and we find that time and time again, in fact, were you all here when we uh, studied the book of Acts, an overall view, I can't remember, they missed that, huh? yes, we studied the book of Acts, that's one of the studies we had since you've been gone, an overall view, and pointed out the passages there, all the passages dealing with persecution of the church and noted that virtually all persecution of Christianity in those early years was by the Jews. That uh, Rome uh, really was very tolerant uh, of religion, and, and they allowed, they just wanted the tax money. And they allowed people to keep their own their various idols and things of that nature. Rome was very tolerant of Judaism, and they would have been tolerant of Christianity too. That Rome enters into the picture only when they've been instigated by Judaism. And just like when Jesus was crucified by Rome, Pilate wanted to set him free. And it was the Jews that uh, that kept pursuing it until they got his execution. And then when we proceed on out even to uh, Herod, uh, taking the life of James the Apostle, we find that, again, it was he's, he found that that kind of thing pleased the Jews. And so he set out to continue the persecution of the apostles and Christians because uh, he was uh, the king of that particular area, and he wanted to keep the Jews happy, and he found out persecuting Christians uh, kept them happy. And Rome would eventually find, find out that thing also. Well, now, what I'd like to do tonight is take and, and, and show a couple of things. I'd like to deal with this thing of the uh, judgment, uh, the downfall of Judaism, uh, the destruction of the temple and everything, but also in the process... I think we can see something about study in general and evaluating information and how important it is to consider any piece of information that you look at from within its own context, that you can take any number of types of information and put it within a, a context and get a completely different interpretation as if it was in a, another context. It's just like we can give all kinds of examples. You, uh, right now, you can make statements that can be used three, four, five, six different ways depending on the context it, itself. So it's all important. But what has happened to the Bible in people studying it, uh, some things were done, really, in all good intention, and it can be used in a good way, but it's actually encouraged the studying of the Bible that takes things out of context. The writers did not write the book 
in chapters and verses. They just wrote the letter to the Thessalonians, the letter to the Corinthians, and that was meant to be read in its entirety. You just sit down and you read the letter, like when we read Thessalonians. Uh, flip over here and look at the last chapter in 1 Thessalonians, in uh, uh, the fourth chapter, uh, verse 27, right at the end. He said, 527, right. He said, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And so that, uh, and then you can see, let's see, look over right behind it to Colossians. And look at uh, Colossians 4 and verse, uh, let's see, Colossians 4 verse 16. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And so they wrote these letters, and they didn't sit down and have some Bible study like we have, where you ponder for 45 minutes over two verses, and you come back and you ponder the next week for two more. It was a letter. And just like when you write a letter to somebody, you don't expect them to have to sit there and ponder for an hour over one sentence. You expect them to simply read the letter and to understand what, what you have written. And you sure are not going to spend no two hours writing that, that one sentence. Well, in the same way, these letters were written and intended to be read that way. All right, what happened is that we've got a big book, and we wanted to make it so that it was handy from a reference standpoint. Uh, and, and, and so chapters and verses can be used. I'm all for it. You know, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it made it possible and encouraged misuse. Well, then what happened with the first translations, like in English, like the King James, not only do you have it divided into chapters and verses, but the verses are set as individual statements. And so instead of being in paragraph form, it's not even in paragraph. You've got chapters and then individual statements, like each verse is a certain statement. And that sometimes these chapters actually are in the middle of a paragraph. And what is the first verse of one uh, chapter sometimes really ought to be the last statement in the paragraph before. And so it's encouraged the type of study where people go to it and they read a chapter a day or two chapters a day. Or they read verses. I'm going to stand up and read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter so-and-so, verse so-and-so. And then we read it like that is to be understood uh, in that in that particular context. And sometimes when you read it, uh, it's it's not that way at all. Now, here's what happens if you don't give things its complete context. I don't want to leave the impression that studying the Bible today is as simple as it was for them receiving that letter then in the first century. They were alive when all these events were going on. And they were in tune to the topography, to the idioms, to the language, and, and to everything. And so there were a lot of things that were said in the letter that needed absolutely no explanation to them. Just like if I were to write you a letter, and you, you went to New York for two weeks, and I were to write you a letter about some events taking place here in Tennessee, I could mention Lamar Alexander or Ned McWhorter or uh, any number of other things and and uh, if there was somebody that had a particular nickname, I would I could just mention that nickname, and you would just identify with it, just like that, because of your background. But now somebody else in New York, give them that same letter, and there'd be a lot of things there they wouldn't relate to or understand. They would have to do some research, and they'd have to read some material about this area, and then they could come to it. So the difference between us and them at that time is that 
We do. When we sit down and read a letter, and this is true not just of the Bible, it's true of any historical work. The Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, you know, and go right down the line. You, you just listen to the Gettysburg Address and forget about the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln and, and how our country started and everything like that, and then you try to figure out what it's saying. A Russian could not read it and understand it. But you and I, with our understanding of our Constitution, with the starting of this country, the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln, we read the Gettysburg Address in a minute's time and understand it with absolutely no problem at all. Well, in the same way, the Thessalonians would have read this letter and understood it with absolutely no problem. That's, Paul's not going into any detail to explain anything. And but where we're going to have, to, what we're going to have to do is we have to go back and read all of the various letters and the Gospels and the Old Testament and study other uh, materials of history and whatnot to get the historical setting, then we can zero in and understand that letter. And really, in doing that, we're do if we did that, we're doing exactly what you do with any historical work. And so I'm saying, what people have been led to believe about the Bible is that it's different than other, in other, it's different than other historical works. You just pick the Bible up and read, and that's what God is saying to you. But in reality, Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica about certain things that they were dealing with. And John was writing to the seven churches at Asia about some problems. And uh, Paul was writing to the Colossians about specific things. And he was writing to Timothy about specific problems. And he wasn't writing directly to me or to America or anything of that nature. And so in order for me to understand what he's saying, I've got to go back and study the history there and, and then get that information. Now, if I have not done that, then what I will do, if when somebody reads something, and I'm going to try to interpret it or understand it, whenever you try to interpret anything, you bring to bear on that information whatever information you have in your mind. And that's why, the, the, by the way, that's also why that the more read and studied you are, the better you're going to be at interpreting any types of information you come in contact with, because of all your experiences and everything are going to help you out. But you're at least, you're, you're, whatever you've got to bring to bear on it, you're going to bring the bear. Okay, so here you are, and what we're going to start tonight is, is I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, and then we're going to back up and see what happens when we set a context. And here you are, you're in church Wednesday night, the Bible study, and, and we, all, we always start service with a Bible reading. And so Brother, Brother John comes up to read the Bible, and <clears throat> he says, I picked for my text tonight, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and verses 13 through 18. That's my text for tonight. Okay? Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died, rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Well, somebody reads this in church and You've heard this passage preached on any number of times, and, and whenever it's been preached on, you've always heard it preached on by he reads this passage of Scripture and preaches on it. 
Well, what does it mean? Well, it, 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 it means what it says and says what it means. It says that, uh, that, uh, that there are these people that are already dead and buried. Uh, uh, don't grieve about them. The Lord's going to come back. He's going to ride that cloud. There's going to be the trumpet and the sound of the archangel. And that then the, the dead in Christ are going to rise up out of the ground. And, and those of us that are on the earth, and we're all going to rise up together to meet the Lord in the, in the air. And so comfort one another with these words. And so that is the that is the text. Well, give me those verses. I preached that for a number of years. Was taught it. Give me those verses. And that sounds uh, anybody to tell me that they didn't believe that the Lord was going to literally come back. So you look up in the sky and see Jesus in the sky, and He's going to be on the cloud, and there's the angel, and He's going to blow that trumpet, uh, and then people are going to start rising up out of the earth, and the graves are going to open, and people come up. I'd say, man, anybody deny that, it's just denying the Bible. You know, it's just exactly what it says there. Okay, that's what the context says. Uh, let's back up now, and let's start at, at 1 Thessalonians. Remember, <clears throat> Paul didn't write 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 through 17. He wrote a letter that begins over here in what we call chapter 1. And let's look at the whole context, and what we're going to do is take a first and 2 Thessalonians together, and in the process, we're going to tie it in with other passages that will help us in a lot of the statements that are there. Now, as an introduction, before we get to Thessalonians, we want to find out something about the people he's writing to, and what the situation is. And so, in the book of Acts, we have the history of the early church, and how these churches were started. And so, we're going to go back to the book of Acts, and read about the starting of the church at Thessalonica, the very, very people here that Paul is writing to, and what their situation is, and then we're going to start here and read on that. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and flip over here to, to Acts 17. <coughs> okay. Acts 17. Beginning with verse uh, one. Okay, uh, I tell you what, Bart. We'll start with you, and let's uh, take about five verses each. With, uh, you and Mark and Nancy. Let's get down through verse fifteen, just quickly through there. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. For there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three <clears throat> Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. That Je this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into welcomed them into his house. 
They are all, they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to the Berea. On arriving there, they were, went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who accompanied Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay, so now look at this now. We're writing, as we get into the letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, we found that when Paul went into Thessalonica, he goes to a Jewish synagogue and he preaches, and he converts a few Jews. But in the process, he turns the majority of the Jews against him. And they actually began to try and persecute him and to stamp out Christianity. And, and then they put down Jason. They drive the man out and beat him, beat him up. And they cause all this great disturbance, and they literally do everything they can, and finally just run Paul out of town. And then the Jews that remain in Thessalonica that have been converted are a severely persecuted people. I mean, they are really looked down on by the other Jews and are, and are, and are a problem. Now, he leaves Thessalonica, goes into Berea, and they're complimenting. said the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, that they... They received the word of God with all readiness, examining the scriptures to see whether or not these things are so. But when the Jews in Thessalonica heard about the apostles preaching over here in, in uh, Berea, what did they do? They run over there to the Berea, and they begin lying and slandering and stirring up the mobs and causing a persecution of the Christians and the apostles, and they're going to run them off again. So what you actually see then is as the church at Thessalonica was started, it started under very severe persecution by the Jews. The apostles were run out of town. They would follow them to other places where they preached, persecute them there, try to stamp out Christianity, and try to run, run them on their way again. And so these are the people now that Paul is writing to. The people, and you can imagine, well, to put yourself in Paul's position, <clears throat> here you are, you know that, uh, that when you go out, as, as Paul did, and you're teaching this Messiah that you know you have been an eyewitness of him, and you've got the information and everything. And you go into this, this situation that is very hostile, and yet there are those select individuals that have enough integrity, enough honesty, enough concern about truth, that even though that whole environment is hostile and ungodly to the gospel, they sit back and they say, hey, what you're saying is the truth that I know, I know it's right, and he is the Messiah, and yes, that, that sounds right to me, and they submit to it, and then when they submit to it, you watch them persecuted and, and, and beaten up, and yet they stand, and then there are, there are the ones that rejected are after you, and they chase you out of town. Well, as you go out of town, you've got tremendous feeling for those people that you've converted and left behind. On the one hand, you're rejoicing in that you have converted those people, but on the other hand, it breaks your heart that the very conversion that you brought about has changed their whole way of life 
and has now become visible for them, but you're also, you're indignant. You're, the Jews now that have rejected the gospel and are persecuting them and are beating them up and pulling them out and, and who have run you out of town, you're pretty indignant, just like you would be in anything where you know you're right and somebody who is dead wrong is lying and slandering and misrepresenting you and trying to bring persecution on you. So the, now, and then when something happens too, when people are persecuted together, they tend to become closer, and the love grows stronger, and the feeling and all. And so, Paul now, from this background, is writing, and this letter now is written somewhere in the early 50s, somewhere in the early 50s. And, uh, and the persecution by the Jews is very, very severe at this time. In fact, all the way up until about 49 AD, even the Jews that were converted to Christianity were convinced that the law of Moses was to be kept. And in Acts chapter 15, that's where, this is two chapters before what we just read, that's where you read that great debate when Paul and Peter and James get up there and present to those Jews that the Gentiles are to come in and that they, they're not to be bound or shackled with the law of Moses. And they finally get to the cross and send out the first letter to the Gentiles that know the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved and to keep, and to keep the law of Moses. And so, even in the church, the Jews are trying to bind the law of Moses and actually look down on the Gentiles from that standpoint. What do you have? His chicken fell out on the floor. Oh, well, that's pretty away. good. Yeah, he didn't have to throw it. You know, step better, on it, get going, did you? That's better than 90% of my kids' school. He's let it drop. That was a hard point to be thrown. Well, that's pretty good, though. Okay, now, from that background, let's get in and, and start with 1 Thessalonians. And we can't do it in time to just read it verse by verse all the way through. So we're going to hit the context of itself dealing with those parts that will apply to the passage we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> okay, rise to the, verse 1, to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 2, we thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, what you see, and, and the feeling for them. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired in the hope of our Lord Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then he goes ahead and talks how his gospel came with power. That would have been the miracles and all that confirmed the information itself. And then notice what he says in verse 6. And after he says, be imitators of us and the Lord, in spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what we just read now. The severe suffering, and we know where the suffering come from. It came from the Jews. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia. All right, now, look at verse 10. Uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So here's a statement to them, that they are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So there is a coming wrath of God, and these people are waiting for the coming of Jesus, and they're going to be rescued from that coming wrath, 
And it's from within the context where they obeyed the gospel in all kinds of suffering because of the persecution that was put on them. Now, we come on down and say, look at verse uh, <clears throat> 2 of chapter 2. Uh, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Okay? So there again, they had the strong opposition when they took it, the persecution. Then, verse 6, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. We're apostles of Christ. Uh, and, and so that, again, the strong thing that they, they knew, their message itself, was not popular with men as a whole. Okay, come on down now to verse... Uh, 12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, they were already being called into his kingdom and, and into his glory. And we're going to keep that word glory in mind as to what, what's going to happen there. Now, come on down to verse uh, 14. Uh, you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen. The same, now look at all of this now. You suffered from your own countrymen. The same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God, are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, the wrath of God has come on them at last. Okay, so we read our context. We have a severely persecuted, suffering people that the Jews who did not accept the gospel have persecuted and fought from the very beginning. And he's writing, he tells them, my prayers is for you, I'm thinking about you, he's concerned about comforting he has feelings for them, and he knows the suffering and the persecution that they're undergoing. And then he says, the same thing that you're undergoing of your countrymen, all the churches that we've already established in Judea among the Jews, they've undergone the same type suffering. And then notice, as we've already dealt in verse 10, that these people that are suffering are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, and he's going to rescue them from the coming wrath. Well, now, what about this coming wrath? He says that, that these people that killed the Lord Jesus, verse 15, the Jews, the prophets drove us out, the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, they displeased God, they're hostile not just to Jews now, but to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come on them at last. So this wrath now was the wrath of God, he said, is coming on the Jews. All right, so here's our time frame. We're in the early 50s. The persecution of Christianity is 100% by the Jews. And even from within the church, there is this tremendous fight as, as converted Jews trying to bind the law of Moses on Gentiles. And it wasn't confined just to Jews, no. They were actually doing everything they could to hinder the conversion of the Gentiles and fighting the gospel everywhere it went. Even as it went out among the Gentiles, these Jews were pursuing the apostles and actually doing everything they could to stamp it out all the way through. And then he identifies here that the wrath that he's speaking about is a wrath that is going to come on the Jews. And we're going to see that the same wrath now 
that comes on the Jews is a wrath that is going to spare his people. Like over here in verse uh, uh, Jesus, who rescues us, that's back in, in 1 and in verse 10, rescues us from the coming wrath. So on the one hand, Jesus' wrath is coming on the Jews, but on the other hand, he's going to rescue these people from that coming wrath. Okay, now, come on down to... Uh, and first, well, let's hold, let's hold right there now. If that comes to and the Jews and all, and let's back up into the Gospels and get a few statements and notice how that Jesus will say, say these same kind of things to the Jews. And first come to Matthew, hold your place here, and flip over to Matthew 3. God's wrath coming on the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem. That's just a real prominent thing all over. Yeah. Okay, now look at chapter 3 and verse 7 and then 10 through 12. Get the setting there. Let's see. Jack, would you read that please? Chapter 3, uh, verse 7, and then verses 10 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then 10 through... Right. 10 through 11? 10, uh, 10 through 12. 10. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing fork. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shell with unquenchable fire. All right, and notice what Jesus promised. First of all, in verse 7, he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, and calls them a brood of vipers. And notice again this word wrath. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And so Jesus is speaking of a wrath that's coming. Then, he says in verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, I'm baptizing you with water, but after me there will come one who is more powerful than I. And he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Notice two things now. The Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork. This is again Jesus, this one that's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing board, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the shaft with unquenchable fire. And so John the Baptist came preaching that telling the religious leaders that they were a bunch of hypocrites, vipers as he used the term there, to ask them who is to flee the wrath to come. He told them there's a wrath that is coming on the Jewish people. And then right after he makes a statement that there's a wrath coming on the Jewish people, he said the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. In other words, the axe is there ready to chop the tree down. The tree there is Judaism. And the, act, the Lord was right now on the scene. And, he, and then right after he mentions about the Acts, he then says that the Lord is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to thoroughly cleanse. He's going to purge 
the those that accept him from those that reject him, and the other will be burned up with unquenchable fire. And so John the Baptist is preaching a message. The Lord is coming. He's bringing two things. He's bringing salvation, and he's bringing judgment. Those that accept him will be saved. Those that don't will be judged. At this time, fleshly Israel is recognized as the people of God. The fleshly Israel is just about to be judged. And remember this same Jesus now, when he comes on the scene, will pick up right where John left up. He'll call these same people hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. And then we'll make statements to them like, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathered her chicks, but you would not, and therefore your house is left to you desolate. And he'll make a number of other statements, uh, talking about the judgment that's going to come in that generation. Now, one, one more over here. In Matthew uh, 16. And it says, And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism man who will immerse you with the Holy Spirit on fire, or he will... Overwhelming you with the Holy Spirit over and the fire. Yeah, he had two things. There was the there was the Holy Spirit that was coming to the people of God, and then there was judgment that was coming to those that rejected him. Uh, in Matthew uh, 16, that was John the Baptist speaking there. Now here we have Jesus. Look at verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory. And notice what this glory is. With his angels. And he will reward each person according to what he's done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. So if he was staying there. The Son of Man's going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. He'll reward each person according to what he's done. But he said, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so again, the statement that the Lord was coming in his glory and in his kingdom, but there were those that was living right at that day that would still be alive and see it when the event come. Okay, now let's get back over into our text in uh, the uh, second and first Thessalonians, and we finished up with the wrath of God, and we saw the context that this wrath of God is one that is coming on the Jewish people who killed the Lord and who also are driving out his prophets and persecuting them. Okay, now, look at verse 19 of chapter 2. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Okay? So right in the same context, when he's speaking of the wrath of God that's going to come on the Jews, and then in verse 10 of chapter 1, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, there are the Christians who are suffering and being persecuted by the Jews. And God's wrath is coming. And that God's wrath will come on the Jews, but yet he will save the Christians. <clears throat> and then in verse 19, what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord when he comes? And so it's something that when he comes, these persecuted, suffering people are actually going to glory in. Okay, now come on down to the third chapter in verse 4. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. It turned out that way, just as we well, well know. For this reason, I could no longer, and then goes on there. But the point is, from the very first, he told them that they would be persecuted. They were persecuted. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, 
we were encouraging you because of your faith. Again, the emphasis on the fact all the way through this book, you have a persecuted apostle written, writing to a persecuted church, and the persecutors are the Jews. And he's telling them that the wrath of God is coming, but you're going to be saved from the wrath of God. It will be to your glory. Here you are preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, and all the time you're preaching he's the Messiah, there's salvation, no one else. These people are calling you liars and blasphemers and trying to take your life. But in the final analysis, you're going to be vindicated. You're going to be proven to be right. And you're all the time telling these Jews, your city's going to be destroyed. Your temple's going to be destroyed. The Lord is going to come in judgment. They're mocking you. They're pushing it aside. But when he does come, his wrath will take place, and it will be to your glory. You're going to be vindicated in everything that you say. Okay, now... He comes on down, let's see, and let's look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 3. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. All right, notice now, he's talking to them personally at that time that they are looking, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord comes with all his holy ones. And so to the people that he's already talked about, the wrath of God, he's told them who the wrath of God is coming on. He's got them looking forward to this wrath of God that is going to come and that they are going to be the ones that's glorified in the process. And so he's coming with his holy ones and the wrath of God will come and deliverance of one people, judgment of another. And we noted what Paul is saying now is the same thing that Jesus and John the Baptist have already said. And we're going to see as we proceed through the New Testament, the only difference is the timing. That John was preaching that the, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to do such and such. Then the Messiah came, and he began to do just what John the Baptist said and all. And they use terms like it's going to happen in your generation. But it's still, it's, it's in this generation, but it's down the line. Now we've got a people that are severely persecuted, and it's going to happen, but it, it's it's... It's something that he's talking to all of them to look forward to. Well, as we move out of Thessalonians and we get into Peter and these books that are written in the 60s, all of a sudden it's imminent. It's at hand. It's next door. It's going to speedily come. And they're just sitting there waiting for it right at that particular moment. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we can, from a, from a standpoint of chronology, we can follow the emphasis on the speed and the imminence of this whole thing, just depending on the date of when the particular book was written. Okay, now let's get into the fourth chapter. And we come on down <clears throat> that uh, to verse what we just read. So now let's read this passage. Here we are in verse 13. We're in a context where you're writing to persecuted Jews. You're persecuted. The Jews are persecuting them. The Lord is going to come. His wrath is going to come on those people. His wrath will be deliverance for you. It will be judgment on these people. It was a wrath that was going to come in that generation. It was a wrath that they were looking forward to. All right, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him according to the Lord's own word. We tell you that we who are still alive and left at the coming of the Lord will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive 
are caught up together with them in the clouds. Okay, now, what I'd like to do is go back after reading this and look at the Lord's description to the Jews of the destruction of Jerusalem and all and show that this exact same terminology and language is used in the process. And so hold your place here and flip right back here to Matthew 24. <clears throat> Okay, now, <clears throat> look at verse 30, starting with Matthew 24, verse 30. All right, now let's set our context before we read that. We have uh, in uh, Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. Okay, look, your house is left desolate. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then look at this back up a little further. Uh, verse 33, you vipers, how will you escape the condemning to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets, wise men, teachers. Some of them you will kill, crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues, pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth and the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, whom the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all of this will come on this generation. Then, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 24, verse 2, do you see all these things he said? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left in another. Everyone will be thrown down, every one of them. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples asked him, tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? All right. Then he talks about the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes. Then he says, verse 9, you will be handed over and persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated. Well, that's what we've been reading in Acts and Thessalonians. They've been persecuted, they're handed over, they're put to jail, they're, they're hated. He said there will be many false prophets that will appear. Verse 14, the good news of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to the nations. Then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, if you're talking about the end of the world, that's kind of crazy. First of all, why, why is Judea any more important than Palmer or New York? And why flee to the mountains? Let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let no one on the roof of his house go down and take anything out of the house. If you're in the field, don't go back and get your cloak. In other words, get out of the city. Get out of the city. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women. Well, at the end of the world, why is it going to be worse for pregnant women than anybody else? Pray that your flight, where are you going to fly to at the end of the world, will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequal to the beginning of the world. So here we have this big wrath situation. But if those days had not been cut short, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So within the couching of this wrathful situation, you have the fact that God's elect are going to be spared. They're going to be saved. Then, and what he's doing is giving them the signs here of what to watch for. And then we come on down and look at verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay, now, we've studied earlier on that and pointed out that in the Old Testament scriptures on a regular basis, 
when the prophet spoke of the destruction of a city, whether it was Babylon or Edom or Egypt or whatever it may be, they regularly used these poetic metaphors, and these were idioms. Uh, just like we say, he was born with a silver spoon or whatever it was. These were idioms that had reference to the fact that there was going to be a judgment on the land, there was going to be darkness and gloom, and people were going to be cast out of their lofty positions and all, and that was used to explain that. Now, let's get down and what we see here, in starting with verse 30, is the same language that we've just read over in Thessalonians. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. Okay, just like what we've read over there. They will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heaven and the other. So, if there's going to be a loud trumpet call, the Son of God coming in the clouds of the sky. Uh, he's going to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. That's the terminology that's used. But look at the setting. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you, those people right there, when you see all these things, you know that it's near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Okay, so the same language that we read over here in Thessalonians about him coming in the cloud, the blowing of the trumpet, the angels, the gathering of his elect, is the exact language that he uses over here in Matthew 24, Mark 13, the same thing, Luke 21, when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. Now, what would happen when he talks about the loud trumpet call, okay, Luke uh, 21, you're talking about the same thing, verse 5, the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, and then he says the time will come when not one stone will be left in another. And they said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign? They want to know what signs to look for before these take place. Same thing, wars and revolutions, rumors of war, nation rising against nation, famines, pestilence. Look at verse 12. Before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you and deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and etc. Verse 17, all men will hate you because of me. Look at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and those in the country not enter it. This is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Going way back to the prophets of the Old Testament, God has spoke through men such as Zechariah and Daniel and Malachi, the latter prophets of the Old Testament, of the coming doom on the fleshly nation of Israel, and then that new covenant is going to come out of that vulture. And then in verse 24, uh, middle of the verse, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles in the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Okay, in verse 26, men will faint from terror and apprehensive of what is coming in the world. And at that time, verse 27, they will see, notice now, same language. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is nigh. So what do you have? The Son of God coming in a cloud and power and great glory. But when you see this happen, 
the same thing that is a destruction and downfall of Judaism is the redemption of these people. Your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass until all these things have happened. Heaven, heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words, or will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, now let's get back over here in our context. In chapter 3, in chapter 4, what is our entire context as we get into that fourth chapter? We have people who are being persecuted by the Jews because they turned to Christianity and accepted Christ. We have apostle who's been persecuted and pursued by the Jews and has already gone to jail and he's going to go to jail again because of the Jewish persecution. And this persecuting apostle is writing to his fellow persecuted Christians. All the persecution is by the Jews. He's writing about this imminent wrath of God that's going to come on their persecutors. The glory of God, the Lord is going to come, and the end result will be your salvation, but their downfall. And from within the context now, he talks about the Lord coming back and coming on a cloud and the dead rising and everything like that. But I'm saying the terminology that he uses of the Lord coming on the cloud and the trumpet blowing and the gathering together and the saving and all is the same type of figurative language that is used over there in the destruction of Jerusalem. And actually what would happen is that when the Lord did come, the way that his people would be gathered and all is that as this information was dissimulated among Christians and they knew the signs, well then those people that believed in Jesus, and we're going to get down to that right into this, we're going to move right into the fifth chapter, notice how that helps us forward. Those people that believed were watching for the signs. And so what we're going to see that when the judgment came, it came, they talk about the judgment coming as a thief in the night, it came as a thief in the night only to the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. But to the believers who were watching on those for those signs, it was never a thief in the night. But they were enlightened, and as soon as those signs came, they got out of there. And so the end result of all that information is the Lord, through that information, gathered his people to himself from all over that Roman world. They literally fled. Rome was going to go to war with Israel. The war would last for three and a half years, from February of 67 A.D. until August of 70 A.D. when it would terminate. And so three and a half years of severe fighting, tens of thousands of Jews will die. It will culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the temple. But during that entire conflict, Christians are going to do everything they can to separate themselves from Judaism and all that's going to happen. And so God's wrath on them, but then the deliverance of God's people. Now, from within that context, now let's continue on to chapter 5. Let's, remember, it's not written in chapters and verses. Notice he says in 13, verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. They're the ones being persecuted. They're the ones to be encouraged. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. But notice now, when's this going to happen? You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety and destruction will come on them suddenly as, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But notice now, but you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are the sons of the light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. 
So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. Putting on the faith and love and the breastplate and the hope of salvation, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice as he ends his letter in verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole, notice now, spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the salvation of that entire person, spirit, soul, and body. The one who calls you is faithful and will do it. Verse 27, I charge you before the Lord, have this letter read to all the brothers. Notice the urgency there. Then he writes the letter. It's in the hands of the leaders of the church. But he wants everybody read this letter. And, and see, one of Paul's concerns, and this is the concern of Peter, it's the concern of James, it's the concern of the Hebrew writer, it's the concern of the writer of Revelation. Obviously, if you've just converted this person, maybe just like uh, Mark talking about the, uh, the bit in using the business world, if you've just recruited this person to go into business, you know if business is pretty hard and, and, and there's a good chance he's going to quit. And yet, you might also know that if you'll just tough it out and suffer hardship for a year or two years now, things are going to go good for him. And so you'd write and, or talk with him, and, and basically, you does that over and over and over. You know, he goes around, and he knows that somebody goes several weeks, and they don't make a sale or anything like that. They're going to be discouraged and maybe just quit. And so he tries to keep going, and look what I've done, and you're eventually going to come out on top and all. Well, what he's doing here is that these people are being severely persecuted and like in, in the Hebrew letter, we learn that, that as a result of persecution, many of them went back into Judaism and, and left it. And so they constantly were trying to encourage these Christians, you hang in there, God's wrath is coming. You're going to be vindicated. You're going to be glorified. All right, now we can also see that how people today, when they not only take this out of context, but when they talk of the judgment as something, well, it's like a thief in the night. That's literally not what it says. It, it's like a thief in the night in the Bible to those people who did not believe the signs of his coming. And they would be eating and drinking and giving in marriage and having a big old ball, and you know, like life's just going to go on. But then he said to the Christians, it's, it's not going to come on you like a thief. You know the signs. And so whenever there became to be rumors of war between Israel and Rome, when there was rumors that Israel was going to rebel against Rome, and then when the battle started, and the Jews and the Romans start to fight all over the land. And the, and the Roman army begins, begins to get closer and closer to Jerusalem. Well, man, if you're, if you're a Christian, you know what's going to happen. The Jews are going to lose that war. And you're going to do everything you can to flee and put the distance between you and, and Judaism. And then when you're living in Jerusalem even, when it reaches the point that the Roman army begins to encircle a city, you're not going to stay in there with those crazy people. You've already heard and believed that by the time they get through that city, that the whole place is going to be burned down and there won't be one stone left standing on another. So even if you're up on a housetop, you're going to think, don't even bother. forget about my belongings. I just want to save my spirit, body, and soul. I want to get out of here. Or if you're out in the field, don't come back in the city. You just head for the mountains and get out of here. Titus, the Roman general who encompassed the city and besieged it, recorded in his writings of the event 
that the Christians left and went to Pella. In fact, he was amazed that all the Christians got out and foresaw everything that was coming. Josephus records that the Christians left and went out to Pella and escaped the event. All right, now, here's the context then, as we finish up in the fifth chapter, is that these people are waiting for something that is going to happen in their lifetime, and they're being persecuted, and when it happens, it will not be like a thief in the night to them. It'll be like a thief in the night to the unbelieving Jews and all. Then what throws people on some of this is, number one, not looking at the whole context. First of all, the whole context starts with Thessalonians, but it doesn't really start there. The whole context goes back into Acts, where we see the establishment of the church. It goes back into the Gospels, where John the Baptist and the Lord, and it goes back into the prophets of the Old Testament, who have already addressed this thing. And all of that is what gives our context. Then, when we look at this terminology about the Lord coming and, and, and gathering his elect and the angels coming and sounding the trumpet and all this good stuff, well, we also notice that when we go back and read the Lord's statements of the destruction of Jerusalem, that he used that type of language as figurative language, that he used it in speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem and told him very plainly that, you know, this is coming right now, that it's going to come in your generation. All right, also keep in mind, you and I might say, well, why did the Lord use terms like uh, the stars falling, you know, and the sun not giving its light, and the moon turning to blood, and, and the earth going to be shaken, and, and coming and sounding the trumpet, you know, and coming on the clouds, and gathering his elect. Why did he just use, you know, our everyday type language? Well, keep in mind, all of these writers are Jews. Their background is the Old Testament scriptures. The Lord is a Jew. His background is the Old Testament. That terminology that people in our society will pick up and read like it's a literal thing was never thought by them as a literal thing. In other words, when Jesus talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and their temple and everything like that and used that type of terminology, for example, the, I will come back riding on the cloud. Isaiah 19 and verse 1, the Lord is coming riding a swift cloud. They understood that as what the Lord riding a swift cloud was an idiom that simply means the Lord is going to come quickly. Uh, see, the pagan idols were carried, and, and they rode donkeys and boats and carried them. But man, the Lord, he rode a swift cloud, and, that's, and, it, and it became an idiom that was used in that way. Uh, the terms of... Uh, but doesn't the, that say also in that context that he's talking about bringing judgment on a particular nation? That's Egypt, right. Yeah. Isaiah 19, 1, that's Egypt. In Isaiah 34, 1 through 4, it's Edom. In Isaiah 13, yeah, we read about the same thing, and yet it's the he mentions the Medes and the destruction of the Babylonians. And you can multiply that type of thing. Hosea, the 10th chapter, is another good example. Isaiah 1 and 2, some more of that same type of terminology. So, what, just like every language has its idioms that are per, in its figures of speech and its poetic metaphors, that are perfectly understood by the people of that culture, so these people had too. And you and I relate, just like now, uh, Mark, we just had a study on Sunday night recently where we uh, studied idioms in the Bible from, written by a man, George Lamser, that is from, he speaks the Aramaic language, is from Syria, and is familiar with all those idioms and all. <clears throat> he did a real good job of, of taking statements that through the years have been taken literal that were well-understood idioms. And in introducing it, 
he pointed out some idioms, for example, that when you and I read uh, that he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, we, we know exactly what that's saying. But can you imagine if somebody from another country read that? They want to what in the world? Death. Right. Uh, I'm tickled to death. You know, or, or he was tickled to death or something like that. And we have any number of other type sayings that we that we use. Blue's top. Pardon? Blue's top. He right. Blue's top. Blue top. Right. Or his elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. You know, he's not playing with a full deck. Mm -hmm. And I mean that we do this kind of thing uh, on a regular basis, and we understand it. And idioms develop over 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 a period of time. And in the same way, these people have their idioms. And by the way, even when the prophets and the apostles write, this is just not biblical language. See, they're writing with their vocabulary in the language of that day. Just like when you read the language of Revelation. John was writing using language and, and, and figures of speech and symbolic terms that were in common use at that day. That I can go back and take secular writing of that particular day and show every single type of thing that John used. Even when John writes in uh, his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, I can go back to other secular writings and so show the use of that term in the same way in expressing the force or power of God or the expression of God. That John was calling on something that he was familiar with and his audience was familiar with also. All right, now, we end the first, first Thessalonians. Let's hop right into second Thessalonians. And again, I know this is on the long side, but to get the whole setting, and that's why I'm going fast. I fear we, we will have time another the next time to go back and zero in on specifics, but just get the overall thing at first. Okay, we're in the second Thessalonians. is written to the same people, and it's written very, very shortly. Now, what has happened is they're still being persecuted. This is a very short time after first Thessalonians, but the judgment hasn't come yet. But what has happened as a result of what Paul said in first Thessalonians some of these people had come to think, well, it's going to come right now. Some of them had even quit working. And they were just waiting. And so Paul wants to let them know now, yes, he's coming. Yes, there's going to be a judgment and everything like that. But it's not right. It's still a little way off yet. And see, we're, we're not up into the 60s. We're still in the 50s A.D. Okay, now, come on down to verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians 1. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance. And faith in all the persecution trials you're enduring. So he's written First Thessalonians. He's now really happy about their perseverance and their faith. They're still being persecuted. They're still under trial. All this is evidence. Now notice now, their persecution, their perseverance, okay? The fact that they were enduring is evidence of something. What's it evidence of that? All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. I'm not. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those, all those of you who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. And so here we have this persecuted people 
And the fact that you are persecuting and suffering is evidence that God's judgment is right. In other words, God's judgment on the Jews, people were going to challenge, challenge God's judgment on his own people. But the fact that they killed the Lord, they're killing the apostles, they're persecuting, he said, this is evidence to you that God's judgment is right. Judaism deserves to be wiped out. It literally deserves to fall. And then they were suffering. But what was God going to do? He was going to pay back trouble, verse 6, to those who trouble you. He's not talking about anything that's happening today. He's talking about people that are persecuting them. God's going to pay them back, just like he said in the last letter. His wrath is coming upon those people. Okay, now we come on down to the second chapter now. Verse 1, the coming concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to them, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed. This is real good now. Not to, We're talking about the coming of the Lord, our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anybody deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until, and then he describes that. Notice this now. Hugh caught this on his own and reading, reading through the thing. I told him, I said, you made a wonderful observation. If the coming of the Lord was understood by the Thessalonians to be the end of the world, why does he write and say, don't be disturbed by some letter as if written by us that the coming has already come? In other words, the coming of the Lord was going to be something that could be heard of in a letter. Well, see, what they were all being taught. See, the center of Judaism is Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem would finally fall and Rome would defeat it, they didn't have airmail back then. They didn't have radios, and they didn't have TV. Many times when a, when a war was culminated, somebody over here, hundreds of miles away, it may be months or even a year before they even found out what happened. And even though a lot of times when countries would go to war, they wouldn't even know their troops lost a battle until a year or so later. In fact, that's why it was so easy to deceive them in, in many times. So they knew what was going to happen. Judaism would meet its absolute downfall in the destruction of Jerusalem. All of their leaders, the Levitical priesthood, priesthood the temple, and everything would fall. But the coming that they're looking forward to was something that they would hear by letter. Well, obviously, it's not the end of the world. And obviously, it's not some big judgment where the whole world is going to be burned up and everything like that. You sure don't have to have a letter by that. So concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anybody save you in any way. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you I used to tell you these things and now you know that what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, 
whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with his breath and by his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse. Why do they perish? They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion that they will believe a lie. Their, their love of, of not love of the truth causes them to be deluded by people who claim to perform miracles and all false signs when really they're not, and it serves as a delusion. Now, God didn't just go in there and, and, and do anything false, but God allowed them to be deceived, and it was their own belief of falsehood and their, and their, their, their rejection of truth that caused them to be totally deluded and able to believe a lie that would lead to their destruction, so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Okay, now, let, let, let's look at our setting. <clears throat> Rights to these people. These people have been deceived, so I'm into thinking, well, the Lord's already come. And they thought it was like a very imminent type thing and all. And he says, no, don't be deceived. That Don't let anybody give you some letter that's supposedly come from us or somebody orders utter some false prophecy. It, it, it's going to happen. And it's, the judgment is going to be passed. But first, something's got to happen. And so there was going to be this rising up, something strong was going to rise up against Christianity, one that he refers to as the lawless one. And we're going to find as we get on through the Bible, John speaks of the Antichrist, and which simply means the individual strongly against Christ. The Antichrist that would rise up and would strongly be against Christianity. And then John would use that as now that you know that you know it's nigh at hand is, is because of this. Well, several things are going to happen here. Right now, at this point in time, the only persecuting force against Christianity is the Jews. That's it. But in 54, in 54 AD, Nero becomes the emperor of Rome. Up until Nero... Christianity had never been persecuted by the emperor of Rome. All right, Nero at first is somewhat accommodating uh, to the Christians. It's no big thing at all to him. Beginning in 64 is when Nero began his very severe persecution of Christianity that was going to go on for a period of time. Nero is the one that when you talk about uh, uh, Christians being cast to the lions, Nero was the one that put Christians in arenas with animal skins on them, and literally turned lions and wild animals loose on them. Nero was the one that lit his gardens with Christians being crucified or nailed to a stake and literally set on fire to burn, to, to light, lighten up his gardens. Nero was the one that, that uh, wanted to rebuild Rome and, and leave a great thing there that would cause himself to be remembered, you know, and, and, and it was too costly, and the Senate voted it down, and so Nero is the one who who hired some vagrants and, and to go out and to set the place on fire. And it got out of hand. And so then Nero's a little concerned. And so what does he do? He shifts the blame to the Christians and actually starts a persecution and a hatred of Christians as a result of trying to cover up his own ugly deeds. And then he, then he begins to zero in on the Christians as a persecuting force. Nero is the one that Paul will eventually go before. And when Paul writes to Timothy, and said, I know that the time of my departure is at hand, 
He is in a Roman jail, and he was going before Nero. And secular history will record the taking of, taking of his head. When John writes Revelation, we're now at about 67 or so A.D., right at six, about 67 A.D., the beast to them was Nero. And Nero was this strong persecuting force against the Christians. He's being used by the Jews. And he is this great force that they've been looking forward, looking forward to, and he's really, for the first time, Christianity is getting it from all sides. But something's going to happen. And then John will deal with this. On the one hand, Nero is this, per this beast, persecutes Christians, and what happens? All of a sudden, the beast turns against the Jews, and the beast will annihilate the Jews. And what happened with Nero? That he was on, he was on the throne, he's, doing, he's persecuting Christianity, and then... Right about this time, in 60, right at the first part, February 67 is where it started. But as a result of Nero being on the throne in about 13 years, he's the Hitler of his day. He's an absolute reprobate. He's a maniac. Uh, uh, he's done so. He's a bisexual. He's a pervert in every way. He's one of the most ungodly people that's ever lived. And you can just go on and on and on. In fact, I've got a lot of good material if you're interested in reading on Nero. But, but he was an absolute reprobate. Well, what happens when you get a person like that on the throne? And he's been there a while, his own people hate him. And so there was a lot of dissension within Rome. And there was a lot of rebellion starting to take place within Rome. In fact, when Nero goes to his death, Rome will have three emperors, just like that, in less than two years' time before they finally settle down because of all the dissension going on. Well, as a result of all that dissension within Rome, wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, the empire tended to crumble a little bit. Israel says, now's the time. Now's the time to rebel against Rome, to declare our independence. And so Israel rose up and started that war. And it started in February 67. Then what happens? The beast that's been on the Christians, they get after the Jews. And then from 67 all the way until August of 70 AD, there is this tremendous war between Rome and Israel and it will culminate with uh, Titus under the leadership of his father, Vespasian, who is now the emperor, bringing his army in and doing just exactly what Jesus said they would do. The walls will be torn down. Thousands and thousands of Jews will be killed. The Valley of Hinnon outside of Jerusalem that was continually burning, uh, Gehenna that is translated hell in your New Testament, Jews by the thousands, dead bodies will be cast and burnt because of the stench, the stench and no place to bury all those thousands of people that have been killed. And they'll be literally cast in and burnt up. The Roman soldiers will come in, the walls torn down, people put to death, the temple destroyed, and when he's through with the temple, there won't be one stone left standing on another. And Judaism will fall. The Lord would then have come in his glory. He would have fulfilled like what Peter said, the time is near at hand. It's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And what's going to happen? All the time that the, Jew, the Jews have been, uh, the Christians have been preaching that here's the Messiah. Salvation is in him. He's God's son. The Jews have been fighting it tooth and nail and said, no, he was a blasphemer. He deserved to die. He's a false prophet. And now judgment will come at two people claiming to be the followers of God. One saying the only way is through Christ and he's the Messiah. The other persecuting. Judgment comes at the house of God. And spiritual Israel of the church is glorified. Fleshly Israel is destroyed. And the glory of God 
proved everything the apostles said was right. Christianity that will then spread and encompass the entire world. And by the fourth century, Christianity is the official religion within the, within the Roman Empire. Now, he goes on further in Second Thessalonians and deals, you can tell that, again, their situation of uh, thinking that, it, that uh, he was going to come and it was imminent and everything had even caused some bad things within there. They had people that uh, were out sponging off other individuals and were uh, not even trying to make a living or anything of that nature, and he deals with that kind of thing also. <clears throat> you know, I think that Matthew is where uh, the King James translators Okay, that's another good point that if you were them at that day reading Matthew, you would have been reading it in your language that you spoke. And we today read a translation. And it just so happened that uh, the English translation of 1611 uh, put the end of the world. They chose that phrase, the end of the world. And for years, several hundred years, people read that. Well, although all the time your, your study people, I mean the people who studied Greek and who used dictionaries and encyclopedias and things like that, anybody that's ever cared to check, no, in fact, uh, you won't hardly find a commentary, but that they recognize and point out that the end of the age is the, the most accurate and that, and that it is the accurate. And if you go to all the new translations, it just simply puts a consummation of the end of the end of the age. But what happened in our society, you again get back to the way the Bible has been handled, uh, not only with chapters and verses, but the, as a result of using the King James for such a prolonged period, people, especially those who did not have an educational background, where they understood that the original language was not English and had to be translated off, began to reverence the King James Bible, and it was looked on as some holy thing that God just dropped out of heaven. And so every time you challenged even a word in the King James Bible, you know, you stood condemned in the process. And so people just sat down and read that like that was God directly speaking to them and refused to accept anything many times that was different. In other words, you were tampering with the word to them was tampering with the King James Bible. I mean, they literally, if you said, it, you know, that's not right, well, who are you? You know, that's that's God's word, you know. And, and again, the, this was done for a number of years, and, and so people would read Matthew 24. And on the one hand, they've got this statement, well, all these things will happen in this generation. But then on the other hand, he starts off by saying the end of the world. So then what they do to reconcile these two, what is now a contradiction, the end of the world, but now in this generation. So to reconcile that contradiction, which that mistranslation has fostered, they go through that passage in Matthew 24, and those things that are concrete and literal, uh, like uh, fleeing from Jerusalem and pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath and all, that becomes an instruction in Jerusalem. And then those things like the stars falling from heaven and the Lord gathering his elect and coming in the final, that becomes a judgment. And so then what you have, this, they go down, this verse is destruction of Jerusalem, this verse is the end of the world, this verse destruction of Jerusalem, this verse is the end of the world, and then they work out a sophisticated interpretation says, now what God is really doing is using this as a type of the end of the world, and he's blended it all together in this very sophisticated way. So their interpretation in that way was fostered by really trying to find harmony. They had the statement, it's going to be the end of the world, then he said it's going to be during this generation. Well, really, if you believe that that says both of those, 
I don't know a better way to harmonize that. And that's exactly what they did. And so we know there's something else in study that we not only need to look at the whole context and look at the history and the culture and the language and all, but realizing that whatever you're reading from, it's a translation. And when you're in an area of controversy or, or depth and everything, you really haven't thoroughly studied it until you've made sure that you agree with that translator. You know, on, and, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar. That uh, You can get a Greek interlinear and, and check any Greek scholar, just like you and I don't have to be mechanics to check a mechanic out. We know that engine's tuned up by just the way that it hears. And you can, you can check out any Greek scholar with the books that you've got and know enough of English. Another thing, too, is that Revelation. <coughs> They've always been in it in the nine. Right. We get uh, that. Now, one thing now, uh, Mark and Nancy, we're on, on Wednesday night. We've been studying Revelation. And we're about halfway through it now. We started several weeks back. And we spent, I guess, two weeks or so just on the dating itself. But uh, that, again, when we get to that, the same information that I've given them, I give you all. I'll give you. A, I'll give you some handouts on the dating, about 12 or so pages, and we'll look. And again, uh, when you get into this, uh, just like me, I, I was the first thing that that interested me really when I got into that is to find out that uh, although most uh, religious groups teach these things about revelation and whatnot, that the scholarship is just the opposite. The vast majority of scholars, overwhelming majority, put Revelation before the destruction of Jerusalem and applied the events to that that happened in that day. And so on the one hand, you've got preachers operating from a theological bias that's interpreted in a certain way because it's just gone on, you know, in their in their church for several centuries. But then when you read from the archaeologists and the historians and the, the scholars dealing with the data and all, you find something completely different. That uh, they, they, they deal with it as a historical fact. And so it, it's like if you stand up and say that, on the one hand, people in the church think you're in the minority or that's something new. But what they don't realize is what you're saying is literally what the scholarship is saying, not just some select individual. And that the, the other is actually looked down on by those that are scholars in that realm as just something that comes from a theological bias that they've been taught that in their group and they just keep perpetuating it. <clears throat> but we'll get, when we get through this, what we'll do next time now, we hit first and fast and fast long, first and second Thessalonians in that in that way, just an overall view. We'll hit uh we'll do first and second Peter the same way. Because see second Peter three, you get into a statement just like in first Thessalonians four. And we'll see what happens to to Second uh, Peter three, when you look at the whole context of First and Second Peter together, then uh, we'll look at First, Second, and Third John as a in an entirety like this, and then get into to Revelation. Look at that. And I think that what I was thinking on that too, uh, Mark, with you all, that I thought when you driving so far and putting forth that much effort, that the passages there that deal with those things that. You know, that you, I know that you've already studied and we've all, like, in other words, those things that deal with godliness of life and things like that, we're already, all of us, in agreement. In other words, if we was in a study tonight and somebody came, was come to our study tonight that was somebody that was not a Christian and I'd been talking to it and everything like that, and we were studying Thessalonians, it'd been totally different because I wouldn't even have talked to them. He couldn't have followed what we're talking about and everything. But 
those passages dealing with godliness of life and Christ-likeness and the, the, the preaching and, and the miracles that confirmed it and the prophecy and its fulfillment and all, uh, that's what we would have been talking about. In other words, all that's there too. And that's the, and for the person who's not a Christian, uh, that's where the emphasis, you know, needs to be at all. I try to tell uh, Hugh sometimes when we're talking that uh, I think sometimes that, you know, and some of the people like he's talking with down there, that, that he makes a mistake in giving people too much information when they're not ready for it. In other words, saying you're wrong here, here, and here, when it would be better to take smaller bits of information and deal with them where they're at. In other words, if you're not a Christian yet, I don't know that the big thing to you is the proof for the resurrection of Jesus, you know, and the inspiration of the Bible, and then the godly life and everything like that. And then when you get past that, you know, you get into this here. But I, I kind of think it's a, a mistake, and it's a mistake I've made a number of times. I really have. In fact, that's why I've learned from it. There's, there's been several times when I had to go back and honestly evaluate myself on some points. Uh, uh, that where I had come out with some things and I thought, well, you really didn't handle it the best you could. You, you tried to give too much information uh, to some people that were not quite ready for it. If you uh, took it a little bit different way, you know, you maybe could have had a different result from some other, which is easy thing to do. 